I'm Christina Bosnakis. And I'm Gabby Godet, and you're listening to the TDN's Let's Talk. Welcome back to another edition of Let's Talk. We're already on to episode four and really excited about this one, Christina. We've got three very interesting trainers on board today. And very opinionated trainers too, which we always love. We had David Donk from New York. He's been he's been in New York for many many years, and uh, uh, really a pleasure to have him on. And as well as Ron Moquette uh, from the Midwest, and we had Brad Cox, fresh off uh, off of a wonderful campaign with Nick's Go in 2021, likely Horse of the Year. So this is a great episode. You're not going to want to miss it. I'm going to go to David first. And David, I had a bit of a fangirl moment when I, you know, when I realized that you were an assistant for a given time to Woody Stevens. He's in the Hall of Fame, tremendous horseman. I just like that era I got into racing, which really excites me because it really got my juices flowing for horse racing. So tell me a little bit, maybe you can give us a bit of a pers- of, of a perspective. Woody was really, he seemed to be the epitome of that consummate old school horsemen and from a hor- and from that era fast forward to now what are the differences between trainers that were training at that time versus now well obviously you know one of the biggest changes is the size of stables um you know when i worked for woody uh you know he was stabled in barn three and four at belmont if you were there and we had a total of 36 horses you know, that was it. So that, that was the size of the stable. It, it changed then when Wayne was there. Um, he was the first one with multiple stables and, um, you know, with over 100 horses. So, you know, but things change in our world. So it's not a bad thing. It just uh, things evolve and then things change. So, um, you know, that that's kind of the biggest change from you know, that's 35 years ago. So that's a while ago. Uh, but, um, you know, today there's, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot more challenges today than there were back then. Uh, you had private stables back then, uh, things changed in the eighties with the tax laws. So, you know, today, you know, my speech is you are the president and CEO of your own company. Um, it's been a difficult change for a lot of people, to look at their self, they're not just a trainer. You're not just a horseman. You're a business owner. And it doesn't matter what kind of business or industry there is in this country or in the world. Um, you know, you're, there's a lot of things, a lot of obligations, a lot of rules and regulations that you need to understand. And, and again, I always fall back. You are the president and CEO of your own company. So it's going to come back to you. So there's a lot to understand to run a business. Um, so it is a, a bit more business-like than just being a trainer. And you guys can pick up on that. Like how, for both Ron and you, Brad, like, how do you guys, how do you guys kind of manage both sides of that? I'm not, I'm not quite as, as, uh, you know, as, as advanced in my career as, as, uh, Mr. David and, and I've been here a little longer than Brad. But I can see that it changes. And the thing that I would say is that uh, some of the stuff when I first came in the game is almost obsolete now. The, the day where the, the horse trainer stays stays at the barn all day and holds his own horses in the foot tubs and does all that stuff and, and 
that that's gone because that guy is out of business. If you're not marketing yourself, if you're not representing yourself, then it doesn't matter how good a horseman you are. You don't get any horses. You have to be very good at, at, uh, attracting new owners because eventually your owners go away. They all do, you know, we all going to die, move something, but if you're not attracting owners, then the last horse you had for that owner may be the last horse you have. And, you know, we used to say there was grandstand trainers. There was, there was backside trainers. There's jocks that turned into horsemen. There's all kinds of different ways and it all works. But nowadays, if you're not somewhere getting the next, you're only as good as the horse you have in your barn. And I've seen a lot of really good horsemen displaced in this industry because they were just not very good at promoting or not as good at promoting as they are at caretaking for horses. And we also kind of changed the narrative of what is success in the last 20 years. I'd say it went from, um, you know, this guy claims a horse for 7,500 and he took it up the ladder to, to 30,000 to this one bought a horse for a hundred thousand and one for maiden 20 is first out. And they're, the accolades given on those and, and not given on those in some cases is what kind of determines who gets the horses. And, you know, I think that people that understand what the market is wanting is the people that's in business. And if you don't, evolve a little then you're out of business i think one of the things i've noticed about brad and i haven't been around mr david as much but brad is very good at organization for a big outfit really good at organization his horses all look good so i know they're getting the care and he's the the best i've ever seen at managing expectations um, if he's got a horse that he thinks is a nice nice allowance horse that is is maybe these people, this ownership group is just interested in stakes, then he lets them know, look, we're going to win a couple of races and, and we're going to let this horse go be the big horse in someone else's barn. That is just as valuable of an asset or a tool as being able to see a, a runner out in the middle of a paddock and taking it and, and developing it. And I, I really applaud him for that part of it. And, uh, and I think that's a part that a lot of us guys that are tweeners that you know, we need to learn is you, you better manage expectations. The quicker you figure out where a horse belongs and get it there, the better you and your owner will be in the long run. Brad, the one thing I, I'm going to, I really am interested in asking you because you've had your license, your trainer's license uh, for, it's, I think it's almost 20 years now, right? And That long. <laughs> it's, well, I want to be honest. I'm going to be honest. I, I didn't realize you had been training that long. And the only reason being that, and, and again, it's just simply because when I, when I heard 20 years, I'm like, wow, first of all, I don't think that you don't seem to be old enough <laughs> to have been training that long. And secondly, I just felt like really in the last, I would say in the last, let's say 10, definitely within the last 10 years, within the last eight years, you really came to, went to another level, if it's fair to say. So can you tell us a little bit, just touching upon what we were talking about with uh, David and Ron uh, just a minute ago in terms of that business aspect and then the importance and in the evolution of your operation specifically, how has your, your operation evolved in the last 20 years? Well, um, 
I've been training right at 17. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's changed a tremendous amount. Um, and I think it goes back to like what Ron just said about trainers, um, you know, holding horses in ice, uh, foot tub, ice tub, whatever it may be, walking your own horses to and from the track. Uh, you know, in the beginning, I think most everybody starting out ha- has to do that. And, and I think those are, you know, what you, you know, horsemanship skills. I mean, I walked hots, I rubbed horses for years, uh, form and assistant. So, I mean, I, I started obviously at the bottom and, you know, learned all the basics of horsemanship, um, you know, just, you know, how to tack horses up, you know, grooming, doing everything. There's, there's a right way and a wrong way to do everything. Attention to detail, I think is what separates a lot of people. Um, so, you know, obviously started out small and, you know, things have evolved, uh, for the good for our stable and our business. And, you know, like, David said, you know, things change. Um, technology plays a huge role in, um, I think, letting people know, gamblers, owners, whoever it may be, you know, who's doing well, who's maybe not doing as well. And once again, you know, a lot of this may be based off of, you know, people, you know, judge you on how well you're doing based off of a, a percentage. But I've always thought, you know, like your win percentage, somewhat like a batting average in baseball. Um it's really no difference. Um, you know, if, you know, you, you, you might be, um, batting 350 or, or winning at 20, 25%. You know, you, I think you do have to keep your numbers up. And, and a biggest thing with me, you know, I, I've raced at Oakland in the winter and I say Oakland in the winter fairgrounds. And I, I use those tracks because, you know, you start your year, you, every year starts over January one new year. Um, I think it's very important to stay relative throughout the year and uh, you know really we we're as a stable we don't necessarily point for one meet we try to stay relative active um running horses in the, the condition they belong in try to have them fit ready and um ready to perform so um it's it's definitely changed a lot over the years but you know the one thing is you know you you have to try to be um active and you know if you're trying to build your stable you know everybody's different you know just like I mean, I started with just a handful of horses. And, and like you said, I have been training much longer than a lot of people expect or expected if you looked at our stats. And, you know, we struggled for a long time. Um, you know, it's like I tell people, you know, people say, oh, where'd he come from? Well, you know, people weren't interested in me when I was running in the 10th race at Turfway Park on a Friday night at 1030. There was no, you know, uh, TDN, <laughs> TDN uh, um reporters asking me, you know, uh, how, how my horse ran or how he came out of it. So, you know, obviously, uh, with, when you take it to a different level, it, it, you know, you get a different crowd and, you know, you get some exposure and, uh, you know, you just try to build off of it if you're trying to build your stable. So you, Brad, you mentioned building your stable and anybody can answer this question, but I, so obviously like you can have, think of this scenario, right? You have your trainer, you've got 25 horses and you're feeling really good about yourself because you've got those 25 horses now. And the winter comes around and you need to find a place to go. You're getting pressure from your owners to go to two separate locations. You have your 25 horses and the fairgrounds only gives you 10 stalls or Oakland only gives you 10 stalls. Do you think racetrack sometime um, I make it difficult for 
people, trainers to grow? Is that the right type of um, process that we should have as an industry? And I'm just curious anecdotally too, with any of you guys, if you like what that transition was like, if you had experience going from like, what do you do when you have 25 horses and they only allot you 10 stalls? Yeah, it, it's tough. And especially it's very, very tough in the winter time. Um, I do think racetracks try to limit your numbers because they do want um, horses spread out or they want the, the horses spread out through throughout other trainers. But, you know, listen, I don't think I think there's a lot of trainers. I mean, maybe not a lot, but I think there's I think there probably are a lot that are content with the number they have. They may want some more, but you know, they may not want to increase their payroll or, or take the chance of, uh, you know, picking up some horses that maybe they don't feel like they want to waste their time with. Um, but I think racetracks do obviously limit trainers in regards to, to how many horses they can have on a backside. Um, so that, 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 that is, that is a little bit of an obstacle obstacle and it can be challenging, but listen, I can remember being split between Oaklawn and uh, the fairgrounds um, a winter or so where I had maybe 15 horses at Oaklawn and a half a dozen at the fairgrounds. And, you know, that doesn't really make sense from a, um, a dollar, dollar and cents standpoint, but it, you know, sometimes you, you have to lose a little money, I think maybe to get ahead and, and, you know, keep and retain the horses you have and run them in the right spots to be competitive and, and keep winning. Um, it, so there, there was someone trying to get started and, and grow their business. I think there's going to be some times where, you know, it doesn't make sense from a payroll standpoint or an expense standpoint, but you just got to bite the bullet and hopefully get through it because it, it can be very challenging. Obviously my situation is different, but you know, Brad's right. It's, it's, Gabby, to your point, I think it's challenging for the young person. So I think that's what's key in our sport to evolve is, you know, a lot of younger people getting the opportunity to. Um, I, I think it's also where do you want to go? Where do you want to be? What, are your, what is your model? My model is not going to work for everyone or a lot of people, I'd say. But um, and again, it's going to come down to clients, you know, what kind of clients, what kind of loyalty um, you know, I've been really lucky. I've got a bunch of clients I've had over 25 years. So I, I'm in a different position because I'm older and uh, I don't want to say I'm set in my ways, but, um, I've positioned myself for a long time to be where I'm at. Um, but it is a challenge for the, someone in someone that's in the Midwest, you know, where do you go? Do you go to the fairgrounds? Do you go to Oakland? Do you go to Florida? Um, sometimes it's rapport. Who do you have a rapport with? Where can you get the stalls? Where do your horses fit? So um, it, it's it's a big challenge. Um, you know, a lot of times in life, it's not always what you know, but who you know. So, um, but it's, you know, people maybe also to be a trainer, don't expect to get too far too soon. You'll, if, you know, you'll earn your way, uh, reputation, Listen, it's like any other business. I always say, you know, we're a trainer, we're an employer. When you're an employee, you work 40 hours a week. When you're an employer, you work 80 hours a week. So, you know, how much do you want to do it? Um, bottom line is, do you love it? So, you, I mean, to do this, um, it's like being a farmer. Uh, I grew up on a farm, you know, you better love it. So, um, and I, I, I use the analogy with my kids, find something in your life you like to do. 
if you find something you love to do, you have the chance to be successful. And, and you know, I'll say Ron and Brad are extremely successful. Um, I'm sure that's that's why we do it seven days a week. Um, but it's a challenge for the younger person. You know, the, the problem like that I had with breaking in to the industry at all, especially was was what you guys touched on as far as getting the stalls and not knowing anyone. You know, I come from I come from a place of Blue Ribbon Downs where we did match racing. And then we did, uh, you know, uh, my first race was for a thousand dollar made in special way. That's the first race I ever won. And when I tried to go to Kentucky, I ran horses in Kentucky for, I think, five years at Churchill before I ever got my first stall. And I had the extra expense of stabling somewhere where I was paying stall rent and coming over and running. And I kept on thinking, you know, asking the powers of be, what do you got to do to get stalls, please? And, you know, apply next year. You'll get them next year. And, you know, it was kind of hard to get in for me. And then I saw it was naturally easier for other people, but that's okay. I mean, you know, the reason I used to get a hard time from Ben Huffman, he always said that, well, you're Oakland's boy. You're a, you know, you're Oakland's boy. I know you're, you know, the guy from uh, New Orleans didn't even give me stalls last year because he said, I know your focus is Oakland. You're not going to, you're not going to give us a, a fair shake. And I was like, huh? Okay. Well, uh, here's the reason. I went, I went to Kentucky for seven years, tried to break in and ended up getting four stalls and losing the majority of my, my clients, the people that wanted to run in Kentucky because I couldn't get stables. And Oakland, when I come there, they said, look, we may have to put you in three separate barns, but we're going to give you 10 stalls the first year. I was there with Al Stall on one side and Tom Amos on the other. And we were in the back. It was actually the pony barn. And I, I thought it doesn't matter. We're here. We're all here. We made it. You know, we're inside. And I felt like that's where the loyalty for Oakland started was for me was they were the first ones to go out on a limb and say, let's, let's give this hillbilly from, you know, Blue Ribbon Downs stalls. And it really helped me because then I got a couple people from my hometown that had some money that sent me a couple more horses. And that's where, you know, you had to have somebody go out on a limb and say, this guy's, this, this group of people is worth having their horses on the grounds. Well, because I think the politics, what I'm hearing, there's there's an element of politics to all of this. And so already when you're starting out, you probably don't have a lot of horses. You're not starting with a lot of horses. You may not have a whole lot of owners. You may have two, three owners uh, that are going to be there to, to support you early on. And it already becomes it's already an issue from the beginning because your horses might be split. It costs more money to do that. You've got to split your staff. I would assume also while you're doing that. And so there is an element, it sounds like there's a, there's a political thing, but I'm guessing, and maybe one of you can, can tell us a few, like 20, 30, 40 years ago, was this the issue or was it a different landscape because you were pretty much staying at the same track year round? What was it like, let's say in the eighties, that, uh, these guys aren't old enough, maybe, to be in the 80s. <laughs> I was in school. Uh, it, I mean, it was tougher then. <laughs> Gabby wasn't born yet. Uh, you know, uh, it, like in New York, um, listen, it was a tough place to get stalls. You know, it is a 180 now. Um, 
you know, New York intimidates people. Um, cost have some costs have come down, workman's comp and stuff. There are advantages um, in New York, but uh, listen, stalls are available. So it is not a little harder in the summertime, but not as many people come, but the horse population is a lot less. So in the 80s, uh, it was a lot tougher. Um, and when we all started out, when we were younger, so the younger person, at least in New York, it's not as difficult. Uh, we're seeing some young people come up, um, uh, you know, Michelle and, you know, a couple of people, Natalie, a couple of girls have been successful. Um, it's great to see, um, get started and, you know, hopefully they get a little support, but, you know, for the East coast, it was a lot tougher in the eighties. David, we're talking about, since we're on New York and you mentioned, you touched on a couple of things in terms of horseman's comp, obviously the labor laws in New York are particularly, they've been in the news. Uh, we've heard about it. Uh, we've heard, uh, you know, several trainers have been affected by it negatively uh, over the course of the last year or two. And tell me a little bit, some of the difficulties, because in my mind, I asked the question really naively the other day to one of my colleagues, and I said, we're dealing with horses. This is not a nine to five job, right? These are animals. And so to have this idea that people punch in on a clock, punch out on a clock, and then your work is over, that doesn't really happen. So tell us a little bit, just kind of summarize for us what's happening in New York and some of the issues with the labor laws. Yeah, well, listen, this started about 12 years ago. So this really isn't that new. Um, it, it started out, we were forewarned in Saratoga that um, the labor board was going to come to the track. Um, they held uh, seminars on two consecutive Tuesdays in the fall. Um, and I can tell you that everyone in October, probably like October or November, everyone got a certified letter um, requesting documentation for January 1st till October 1st. And I can remember that well. Um, so everyone basically got audited. This is at least 12 years ago. Um, so basically the labor board came in and they wrote their own handbook for us. Unfortunately, um, I saw an article recently with a trainer that got fined and mentioned, you know, we are not considered agriculture. Um, and I don't know in other states, in the state of New York, uh, 50 hours is considered normal. It's not overtime, not 40. So, you know, basically they came in, I think they initially thought we weren't paying enough. Um, and then I think they were satisfied that way, but, you know, they wanted us to calculate actual hours. Um, it had been done previously in California. So, um, listen, you're, you're right. So in that aspect, the game has changed drastically from the 80s to now. Um, you need to run it as a business. You, you need to calculate, be fairly accurate on your hours. Um, and part of that is calculating overtime. And obviously, in the state of New York, minimum wage is now $15 overtime is $22.50. So, and then there's split wage. Um, I'm a little different because I do my own books. I like to do bookkeeping. Uh, I do my own payroll, but that's, it's a huge challenge for people. Um, even if you don't do it yourself, you need to understand it. So yeah, it, it is a different way of 
they're talking about holding the horse in the ice tub and this and that. It's like that guy's on the clock, you know, or listen, um, you know, if, if they're hanging around the barn till one o'clock, we used to whatever. Um, that's really not done anymore, you know, because everybody's on the clock. So um, it's a disappointing part of what we do, I think, um, you know, used to be maybe you didn't get days off. Um, you do do days off. If I have a lot of help, um, some of my grooms are on a five-day schedule. So it's easy to keep hours down. Um, so yeah, it, it's a it's a big challenge. Um, I don't know if you'll see it everywhere in the future. Um, but you know, if you're in New York, um, you know, you need to be aware of it, understand of it. A lot of the issues that guys got into also were immigration. So um, I'm greatly involved in the last 25 years in immigration, uh, do a lot of visa work. So, um, it's, it's the same thing. And there's, there's these rules and regulations. They tell you what you have to do, um, and you need to follow them. Can I jump in there with one of the things that, that I would like to attack kind of is the perception that trainers are just getting filthy rich. You, every time someone says something about, you know. I like how everyone uh, giggled with that comment, Ron. <laughs> I mean, okay. I started, I started like Brad and like, like David. I started at the bottom. And when I moved to the racetrack the first time, uh, coming to a move to Oakland Park, they give me a tack room. It was in track robberies, tack room C. That's where I lived the first year that I worked here. I made $185 a week. And I know we're talking about, you know, there's dinosaurs roaming and whatever, but I, I made $185 a week. And if you looked at my clock that, that I did, I promise you, I was there for the love. It wasn't the money. And I worked my way up and kept working my way up to a groom that made that made three hundred dollars. And then if you clipped horses, you, if you clipped your own horses, which we were allowed to do then, then you made thirty dollars. And if you held horses for a blacksmith, you know I was hauling hauling feed, hay. I was doing everything I could. And then I thought, well, when I make it to be a trainer, it's going to get good. Then that's when I make the money. I don't mind sacrificing down here because when I get up there, I see. I worked for Bernie Flint for a little bit and I saw he, he drove a Lexus. I mean, holy Lord, that's awesome for me. And the first, the first time that, that I started paying people and I wanted to pay people everything they were worth. I wanted, and I did it. And I was very proud of that. And I noticed that my first three years of training, I lost $172,000. I lost $172,000. Now, Everybody compares this to other industries. You, I don't know of anybody that would work the hours that a trainer does and, and sign up to lose that much money and still have people tell you that you're cheating your help or, or whatever. The, the perception that, that, you know, I'm not saying that there's a 1%, okay? The 1% is what everybody talks about, is the ones that are super duper highly successful. And, you know, they're, they're, they're not, they're not breathing the same air as the rest of the, of the people. And everybody's trying to get to that era and I, or that, that rare air. But you would think if you ever got on social media, and I don't recommend it, whenever one of these things happen, they think that every trainer is taking advantage of, 
of their help. And it's just not true. Now, do some pay better than others? Yes, that's why they get better help. And some, you know, but everybody's evolved over the last 12 years for sure. But before that, we, we've all started. I wouldn't treat anybody like I was treated. No, and, and, but I also know that I weeded out who wanted to be there very quickly because I, I come in there with a group of guys that all come with me and they're all, you know, one of them's waiting tables in a nice restaurant. The other one's an assistant coach in his third career. I mean, they're all doing other things because they couldn't stomach what we had to go through to get to where we're at. I just don't like the perception that's, that's basically an unprotected perception that trainers are just filthy rich and taking advantage of everyone because that's, that's so not the case. Well, I mean, Brad, you're likely going to be champion trainer once again. I mean, is it all sunshine and rainbows? Can you kind of speak a little bit more to that? <laughs> Mostly thunderstorms. <laughs> um, no, no, you know, in regards to the labor issues, you know, it is tough in New York. It's very, very tough. It's very regulated. Um, you know, we have a time clock there. Um, we're in the process this year of putting them in at, at on our Kentucky circuit because um, I do think it's, as David stated earlier, it's going to come down to where I think at some point, you know, these labor boards are going to uh, monitor everything we do everywhere, uh, not just New York, but it is very strict in New York. I actually had horses in New York until December of this past year, 2021 um, for four and a half years. It was the one state that I was in with a horse um, over, let's just say the last five years, Kentucky, I would eventually pull out of Kentucky completely in the winters you know, Turfway kind of filled that gap with New York, but you know, that had a lot to do with it. Just the rates that we're having to pay in New York, um, the overtime and, you know, it does change things up, you know, like David said, you know, when I was coming up as a groom, a hot walker, whatever, uh, you know, you, you would feed in the afternoons and you would just hang out at the barn, roll bandages. Um, you know, you may hang out till five thirty, six o'clock at night, you know, just go home because you enjoyed being at the barn. Now it's like, as soon as four 30 hits in the afternoon, it's a ghost town. Everybody's just gone They, you know, they, they, they punch a time clock. It's like, it's, it's almost like working in a factory in New York. It's really, it's really strange and odd. Um, but that's just the way that, 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 you know, the labor boards created it. And that's the way I say it's going to be that way from now on. So it, it definitely turned in from to more of a, a job where guys are, you know, on the clock, uh, just like in a factory. Um, they know they have to work till 10, 10 30. And once they, um, punch, punch the time clock, they're out of there. But, and that wasn't, I don't feel like that was the case, um, you know, 15, 20 years ago at all. People enjoyed being at the barn and I'm not saying these guys today don't enjoy being at the barn, but not like it used to be. There was definitely people that had a little bit more, I would say love for the horse, passion for the game, passion for their work, as opposed to just collecting a check at the end of the week. Brad, the one thing I want to go to the second part that Ron was just talking about just a, just a minute ago is that that perception that people have. And I, I think you're really in a great position to answer this question because you obviously have experienced both sides of it. You started out early years, as you pointed out, you know, you had horses, at, you know, maybe at some smaller tracks and some, you know, smaller races, smaller purses. So you experienced that side of it and that struggle. But now, obviously, you've been you've had the tremendous horses in, in recent times and, you know, the success has come. 
Is it really our perception that, oh, especially the guys that are at the upper echelon of training, they're just rolling. They're just on easy street. Um, Because obviously I'm assuming you have you have bigger like you have a lot more staff. uh, You have people you got to pay. You got a lot more expenses, too. So tell us a little bit about people's perception that because you are one of the top trainers, uh, uh, certainly in this country, that it's just really easy for you. No, there's nothing easy about this. And and like David said, I mean, it, it, it's a tremendous amount of work. You know, I, I have younger people come to work for me. And like you said, the perception, oh, this is easy. Well, you know, I think everybody or there's a lot of people that think, oh, well, I could do this. They can do it for maybe a week. They can maybe do it two weeks, but then get into week maybe three, no days off um, on the phone, basically from the time you're finished training for the next two, three hours. I mean, listen, I apologize. I was 10 minutes late getting on this interview because I was on the phone with owners that I had to take care of business. Um, It's nonstop. Um, Horses get hurt. Um, You have to make those phone calls. Uh, Horses going to the clinic for, you know, um, just issues, whether it's colic or chips in an ankle or, or whatever it may be. But it's a nonstop 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, job that listen the bottom line the, I always say the reason we continue to come back and do this every single day is because the highs outweigh the lows there's so many more lows I mean th- that's just the way it is I mean with so many horses in training there's you know there there's going to be things happening every day that's not good but the thrill of winning um, at a high level or winning period but it, especially at a high level the thrill you get the satisfaction you get being a part of a very good horse is just, it's a thrill that like no other. Um, and that's why, that's why I think we keep doing this in regards for, for the trainers. I mean, it's just, um, it, but it, it's tough, but it's, there's nothing easy about this. And anybody wants to sign up and give it a shot, uh, you know, go for it. Good luck. And, you know, it'll work out for some people, but most it's not. I, I really think that, um, um, you know, a perfect example, Saturdays and Sundays for our trainer, it's their busiest day. It's their busiest day. That's where the general public, the workforce of America, that's their easy days. They they're off Saturday, Sunday. That's not a, that's not our that's not the case with us. That's when it's showtime for us. Lots of times was on Saturdays and Sundays. We work. We may have some downtime on Saturday and I'm sorry on Mondays and Tuesdays, but for the most part, our weekends there, there's not such thing as a weekend for a horse trainer. Not not a weekend at all. And I mean, you know, we we miss out on a lot. I mean, I miss out a lot. Uh, with with my boys growing up and you know I have a six-year-old now that you know um I'm not around that much in the winter and it, it's very hard but you, you just learn to deal with it manage it the best you can he's been on an airplane he's on an airplane twice a month um so it's um it, it's very challenging it's very challenging for your your family especially with the moving and um it, it's it's definitely nothing easy about this this is very demanding Fascinating conversation from our guest, Christina, but we're going to take a little bit of a pause to thank our sponsors at First Racing. They already had the Pegasus World Cup and it was sensational, but there are a couple of big days on the calendar coming up as well, including at Gulfstream. Gulfstream always during this time of year is loaded. We also came out of the Holy Bull, which was a fantastic race. And now going into such a big weekend, it seems like every big weekend is a big weekend uh, at Gulfstream, doesn't it? And uh, after 
of the Holy Bull, we've got the Fountain of Youth. And, you know, it's really important to note the Fountain of Youth and also they have the Devona Dale on the same day. Really, those are classic stepping stones, races that are going, we're going to see, or we typically see horses that go on to the Triple Crown, go on to the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, the Belmont, of course. Uh, but it's really exciting racing at Gulfstream. I'm down in Florida. We get, to, I get to enjoy it, but we all get to enjoy it, really. So great, great racing. But Gabby, it's not only at Gulfstream that there's big racing on March 5th. I feel like there's so much focus on the three-year-old prep races at first racing tracks, whether it be Gulfstream, we've had several derby winners come out of South Florida, but we've also had several derby winners come out of Santa Anita. And March 5th is also going to be a big day at Santa Anita. It's going to be San Felipe Stakes Day, but also Santa Anita Handicap Day. There's going to be three grade ones on the card and the Phillies race, the three-year-old Phillies race will be on Sunday as well. So a super Star Weekend at uh, Santa Anita on March 5th, as well as at Gulfstream. We hope you tune in. Brad, I think you brought up a really important part because at least for me personally, I've got a baby that's going to be three months old, February 12th. And, you know, Norm and I have sat down and tried to plan out what we're going to do for the next couple of months with my work, with his work. How do you be, how are you supposed to be in all these different locations with a child? And then when they get to school age, that makes it even more difficult. Um, And we've had conversations. I mentioned earlier, our first podcast was with Liz Crow, Christina Blacker, Anna Seitz. And we talked about women managing, uh, you know, their careers, successful careers and family. But what about the, you know, the men, the, that side of it too. This is a lifestyle. It is all consuming. All three of you have children. How has that been throughout your careers and the kind of like change throughout the years too. No, I mean, it's, it's very, it's very challenging. Um, you know, um, you know, my wife, Livia does a good job of coordinating flights, uh, getting herself and Brody, uh, you know, down to the fairgrounds or hot springs or, or wherever they were actually here for the Pegasus this weekend. It was a quick trip. I didn't feel like I even got to see him much just due to the fact just so, so busy. Um, with Nick Sco and we had a Philly on the undercard, but, um, you know, it's, it's very challenging. I think it takes, um, you know, obviously a spouse it's knows what, you know, what, what they're getting into. Um, and it, it's hard. I mean, you know, I, I think that's another thing. like, you know, when, when I am back home, like honestly, like taking Brody to school, um, or picking him up from school is really kind of like, I mean, those are, those are, those are highlights to me. I mean, small things like that, that's how, um, demanding this job is that's how um, how stressful it can be at times and um, it's 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 very it's very very challenging to make time for your family and um, you just have to do it I mean it's crazy every summer we try to go on a week a family vacation for a week and you know the first thing Olivia will ask is um, you know what weekend is the Belmont what weekend is like the, the, the stakes of Prairie Meadows or when do you go to Saratoga so it's you know you, we we like this past summer, we basically had to manage our um, vacation around Mandaloon, essential quality and, you know, horses of that caliber that, you know, you have to be there when they're going to run and you want to be there. You're excited about that. But and you're also excited about getting away for a few days as well. So it's um, it's challenging, but, you know, it, it all works out. You got to have a family. It's very understanding for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Like, listen, Brad, uh, it's done a good job with it. Todd is a good friend of my example. 
you know, listen, they put themselves in this high profile. They're very fortunate. Um, listen, they don't want to give it back. And so, um, you know, there's, but obviously um, you hope that your other half is the better half. Um, and, you know, listen, I made a decision when my son was in fourth or fifth grade, we used to go to Florida for the winter at a house there. Um, we realized at some point that he needed to be probably best in one place. Um, and that was going to be New York. Um, so I stopped basically going to Florida, it took me a few, few years to filter that out and just made a decision that, you know, I'm going to base myself in New York. And I lost one client that went on to be quite successful with the horses. And he had asked me point blank. And he said, are you sure that's what you want to do? Um, and I said, yeah, I, I'm not going to Florida. And I said, listen, it's coming from here. I made a choice that the family was first. Um, at the same time, financially, it changed because we did get slots in New York and the money changed. Um, so I look at it today. It's not economical for me to go to Florida the way my model is, but everyone has to make find their own path. Um, you know, and for me, it was making a decision that um, the kids came first. Um, I'm going to tell you the next 18 years are the greatest years of your life till they're gone off to college. Um, and, and I'm glad I did it. Um, you know, like Brad said, just being able to pick them up to school, do whatever, you know, I mean, Belmont is a stone's throw away from my house. Um, you know, I didn't miss all that because, you know, one's living in Austin, Texas, and the other one's in Denver, Colorado. So I'm glad I got those years uh, with them. And Ron, did you feel like you had a similar experience or you have a similar experience with your family? Well, you know, whenever you make a, a choice of, of doing this for a living, you you make a choice that other people are affected by. They didn't choose this career path that I did, but they're just as affected as I am. And luckily that, you know, I I had better half and and they they helped you know, fill in my deficiencies and, and, uh, you know, and the other thing is that my kids all love the sport. So whenever any time that they could choose to do something or come see dad at horse races or whatever, they chose, they chose to come. And, uh, I was very, very lucky with that. I, I, I have to always, you know, I feel like I'm always trying to compensate and make up for, for things, but I was very proud of how many, you know, how many events that I was there at and, and the fact that it wasn't easy, but it was worth it. And, uh, you know, I think I, you know, I hit the lottery. I'm proud of my kids. They're, they're all, uh, you know, outrunning their pedigree. So, you know, I'm, I'm tickled to death with what the finished product is. And I'm a granddad, you know, five grandkids. So I've got, uh, yeah, I've such got, a young uh, man, such a young man like you and your yeah. granddad was. <laughs> wow. We didn't have cable, <laughs> <laughs> if or or anything to do. I, but we, uh, you know, I've got awesome, awesome better half. That you know, my wife is is the only person that's in the barn more than me. I mean, she's you know she's ate up as I am, so we're all affected by the same disease. And my uh, sons are crazy about you know handicapping and watching the races and you know if you saw our threads you would think I was talking to a gambler or assistant and Brad's the same way I think his his boys are 
are super affected and that's that's the coolest thing in the world and the only bad thing is is whenever you're around and maybe you don't run quite as good as you thought your your kids sometimes get hit with some friendly fire from from some of the the punters that are mad that uh, the horse didn't run up to their betting expectations i always feel bad for them I'm like you know if they're sitting in my box i hope that they don't hear a lot of you know heckles if we run you know fourth as the favorite but other than that it's been pretty good I just wanted to ask uh, really quickly, you know, me, I grew up, my dad was a trainer. My mom kind of is right-hand woman in the, in the uh, shed row, sister's a trainer, husband's a trainer, on and on and on. But when I was young, I can remember dad inviting over trainers for dinner and just having, there was so much camaraderie. And maybe that came from by the fact that he was a mid-Atlantic trainer and he was in Maryland and, you know, a year round circuit and you established friends. But do you guys think that there is still that camaraderie amongst trainers nowadays? Or do you think it's just gotten so crazy competitive that you guys don't have those relationships anymore? I do. I I mean, I still do. I, uh, it is very competitive and you want to, you know, I claimed a horse off Brad last week and, but I cheered for him like crazy in the, in the, you know, in the Pegasus we're, we're competing, but I know what he goes through. So I'm on his side regardless. And, but like you said, I, we have a Tuesday lunch deal. We try to every, every week. I used to have it with Lynn Whiting and Steve hobby and occasionally other people will come too, but uh, that's, that's happened for 12, 15 years. Uh, you know, Asmussen's family is, is good, good friends with us. We play basketball together at, at my office and, you know, we go to eat lunch when we can and dinner when we can. So I think you're going to be, you know, open yourself up to a little kidding and whatever. And we, we talk shop a little and I'll give him a hard time if he's like, really, you had to run a horse with a 95 buyer speed figure to whip my ass or, you know, <laughs> something like that. But, you know, it's you're going to have an opportunity to be around people that are going through the same exact thing you are and what, you know, good times makes, you know, makes acquaintances going through the same exact hard times, make friends. We've all been fired. We've all been taken advantage of. We've all been, you know, disrespected. So we've got that. So we ought to be able to at least have that in common. If you, uh, the competitive, freaky side of us can can always be put off for a little bit of time to appreciate the we all went through this togetherness that could be, you know. Yeah, Gabby, I don't know. Um, I agree with you. It's it's different um, here in New York. Like now, geez, most everyone that I'm friends with, they're they're not here. They've traveled. They're in different spots around the country. Um, probably the one place where we all, everyone tries to get together. Um, is Saratoga, which couldn't be any busier place <laughs> from sun up to sundown. But, you know, that's kind of where everyone is together here. Um, but yeah, it, it's different, um, you know, here anyways. And, and that's because people move around. Uh, I think even probably like Brad, you know, he's it's a big operation. He's got multiple outfits. Um, there's a lot on his table. And if he has a free time, he's got a wife and kids. So um at the end of the day, they probably come first. Yeah, no, for sure. That's right. And, uh, 
You know, the one thing I would say too, though, um, you know, I, I do have some friends that don't work at the racetrack and when I can get away with those guys and like maybe watch a football game, you know, it, it really does clear my mind. It does take me away from racing for maybe a few hours because if I'm just sitting at home and, you know, maybe watching the news or whatever, I mean, I do find that my iPad's near, I'm checking results, checking charts, looking at the form. So, I mean, it's something that is very hard to shut off, but when you can get away from it for a few hours and just, you know, whatever, watch it, watch the, the, the Chiefs Bengals game or um, the late game last night. Um, you know, it was, it, it's, it is something that can, can take your mind away from it. Um, just relax with some friends, have dinner and uh, it will take you away. Although Sam Houston was running some big races yesterday. So wasn't completely uh, taken away from it, but it is, it is challenging to shut it off and, and um, you know, let it escape. And I, I think it is good to have some friends outside the track as well that, that, you know, they, they have maybe lives that are a bit more normal. Um, and it kind of, maybe, you know, you can kind of see how they live, you know, once again, back to people that have weekends off where we don't. Yeah. It's a familiar scene. The, the, uh, race on a phone at dinner, like you can never shut off. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've been at a dinner and a horse is running on a phone and you just, you, you're cheering in public and it is what it is. <laughs> and, you know, once again, that probably has a lot to do with um, the so-called super trainer. Now it goes right back to that where, listen, I can be eating dinner and watching a horse run at Indiana and then watching a horse run in New York. And I may be in the paddock at Churchill. So, I mean, that I think, you know, technology is obviously, um, you know, help super trainers grow. But listen, D. Wayne Lucas didn't have that when he became the first super trainer. So if anybody wants to say super trainers are bad for the game, blame D. Wayne Lucas. <laughs> I love that. Not here, Brad. This is not here. This is like the biggest D. Wayne Lucas fan. No, no. Uh, yeah, me too. He's, he's the Nobody's going to say man. it here. I, 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 I didn't say it was bad. But no, I no. Like but, but Brad, well, you know, you said you said something that's really funny that just actually that made me think of that, you know, you have your friends that some of your friends are not racing people. And I do, too. And the, the flip side of that is I had one of my friends one year. She got married in Australia on Derby Day. And it was like the end of my life. Like when I found out because she was my best friend, she was one of my closest friends. So that I was going to go to Australia and miss the Kentucky Derby. It, I was like, absolutely like devastated, but it's one of those things. There's the flip side where you do, we, like you were saying weekends, there, there are no weekends. Gabby can probably attest to that. I'm in the media horse racing. I work weekends too. We're all weekend, you know, people, but the one question that I have for all of you that I think that kind of segues a little bit from what we were just talking about is we're talking about friends and family and all the people around us and all the people we trust. Now, the probably the the single other group that you guys have around you besides friends and family are owners. The importance of owners the importance of having not only good owners, but owners that have stuck by you uh, through th thick and through thin, through all of these years. But tell us a little bit, like sometimes, you, you know, we'll hear in the news that, you know, sometimes there are some owners, and I'm not going to point fingers because it doesn't even really matter who, but just that sometimes if trainers are not getting paid by owners, 
it can become a problem. Even if you're a successful operation, I would assume not getting the, that money to pay your staff and everybody else, it creates like a whole cascade of events. So if you guys can maybe just tell us a little bit about the importance of, in terms of having those owners and having owners that also, when you guys are taken care of, basically the effects that it has if owners are not paying bills, what happens to you guys and everybody everybody underneath? Man, I'd love to jump in on this. I've been doing it a while. So listen, I um, yeah, you have two high profile owners in the last year, year and a half that we all know about. Um, but they were notoriously bad pay for a long time. That, that, that didn't happen yesterday, a year ago, two years ago. You knew that. And I always felt bad when I saw someone like Young starting out and had horses for them. Like, they're going to get screwed. I mean, it, it's just bottom line. Um, listen, I've been doing it a long time. I've been lucky. I got a lot of loyalty, a lot of great owners. I am adamant. I get calls all the time. Listen, I'm in New York. I don't have the best horses. A lot of New York breads. Uh a lot of, they're all small time people. I don't have anybody that goes to the sales and spends a lot of money. But, um, you know, when I get someone new, I just tell them upfront, I'm adamant about one thing. I get paid on time. And you either, if you don't like it, then I certainly don't want that client. Um, but listen, I put myself in a position that I don't need to have that person. Uh, you know, I, I have enough on my plate that I'm comfortable with. Um, but it is an issue. And I'm not sure why in the industry, it hasn't been addressed, there hasn't been support from there are in some jurisdictions there are, I think in Pennsylvania and California a little bit. But you know why there isn't support for uh, people like that. It's no different than a bad vendor. It's no different than a trainer not paying their bills. Um, so yeah, it's an issue. Um, it's always been a bit of an issue. Um, I don't really have a problem. I can tell you today, I got a couple of people that are a little bit slow and I don't like it. And I don't know how long it'll go, um, but I don't have to have them. Um, but um, there was uh, a podcast or on TDN, right? With Drew Malika and a couple of guys a couple of months ago. Um, and it, they talked about that. Um, and, uh, you know, but, it's interesting because I talked about we don't have contracts um, today. I don't I don't need them. I'm in a stage in my life that I don't. Um, you know, if I get to do this ten more years, but you know, is that an issue? And I use the analogy when you go to the grocery store, they make you pay one form or another. So it's not rocket science. Um, you know, there's nothing worse than a bad client that won't pay. It doesn't matter how good their horse is. That doesn't matter because if you're not getting paid, you know, you have bills. And like we say in New York, uh, it is more challenging. Um, and, you know, back onto the speech of being a president CEO, you know, you have your payroll, you have your federal, you'll have your state, you know, you have immigration costs, uh, you know, whether you're paying quarterlies or whatnot, you know, you, you know, the government doesn't care, you're going to pay. But uh, yeah, it, there's nothing worse than having a bad paying client. Brad, what I was going to say, Brad, do you think, is there something that you can add to that or anything, any, a different thought? 
No, I mean, it's, you know, we, we've had, we've had some clients beat us out of money before um, and probably never going to see it and, you know, just come to grips with that. Um, but, you know, that I think like David said, there's been a couple of guys that have been in the news over the last couple of years. And, you know, it, it, the one, one thing it taught me is, uh, you know, I, it, it did teach me to say no. Um, cause I've been approached by some people that were notorious for, um, maybe not paying well or paying on time or even paying period. And, you know, I turned them down. Uh, I didn't want to get myself into something I'd already gotten into with another client. And, you know, um, you know, that is the one thing about trainers. I mean, you did, or owners, you know, you, they, they, they have a reputation for being good pay, bad pay or slow pay. Um, I always say slow is better than no, but you know, you always, <laughs> You always, you know, and, and it's, and I think, look, um, it's like David said, the, the racetrack's a weird run. It's a weird run business. I mean, like we have hay, straw, feed delivered, and we don't pay when it comes to the door. And we'll go to the tax shop, we'll buy things, purchase things, and then pay at the end of the month. Therefore, you know, it, it, is, it is run a little weird. It's not, it's probably not run the way it should be. Um, I think if we could pay up front and, and, and do things a little bit more like the real world, it, it would probably run a little smoother and it would probably weed out uh, owners that are not paying the bills. Um, because I think it would put a lot more pressure on us to, to obviously crank down on these guys to keep, get them to pay. But for the most part, I, I feel like, you know, most of my guys are pretty good um, in regards to paying on time. Well, the problem is, it seems like if one owner doesn't pay, you say no, he'll go to the next guy, they'll say yes or no, they'll go to the next guy, and you you never really wind up weeding this owner out. They just go to more vulnerable trainers who might not have the same type of cash flow, and they're relying on these owners that aren't necessarily paying. Um, I've always had a thought that maybe the onus should be put on the racetrack, that if there are owners with outstanding bills, they're not allowed to enter horses. They're not allowed to run. And I mean, Ron, do you have any thoughts on how to maybe remedy this problem? My wife does hunter jumpers. And I've got a client that, that does uh, the, uh, what is it? The deal where they do the fancy quarter horse stuff. And every one of those have to pay up front. We're the only industry I know of involving a horse that you don't pay up front. We sent my wife's thoroughbred that we're doing a makeover to go down to Florida. And we, we sent two months of, of training up front with the horse because that's what the trainer gets. to get paid up front for the first two months. And then you'll get an invoice 15 days before that's over so you can pay up front for the next. And, uh, you know, I've had owners before that was, you know, seven, eight months behind. and and claiming horses at the racetrack with another trainer it's hard to do we're starting to do little things to help trainers a little we've got the uh deal here at oakland where you you get the 10 percent you know taken out and put into the trainer's file and we did that at delaware as well and i think that helps a little the bat i mean horrible to to win races and an owner beats you out of that you know, or have to wait six months to get your portion of that. And the jockeys already got theirs taken out immediately. So we tried to get it to where at least we got that money. You didn't win and you didn't get paid for it. But it's caused me to reevaluate how I do business. And uh, there's, like Brad said, we, we know who the bad people are. We talk amongst ourselves. The, the racetrack has a way of 
letting people know who's who's who. And, uh, you know, it made me to where I was, I started owning more of my own horses. I just decided that if I'm going to finance these things and then I might as well put myself, if I'm the one that's actually doing this all the time, I had about, I had one owner that passed away and they owned 12 horses and 16 months after he, he had passed, I got eight cents on the dollar for the balance that he had five months for why he was in the hospital. And the, the estate was worth $17 million. But I settled for eight cents on the dollar. And I was, you know what, if, if, I, can, if I can finance it that long, then I'll just start buying me a few horses on my own. And we started Southern Springs just because I decided I'm going to demand of who I want to work for and not, you know, don't have to take everyone. Once again, thank you so much to our sponsors at First Racing. We also have another important sponsor in Healthnetics. So today, all of our guests will receive a premium CBD gift set from Healthnetics. For everyday aches and pains and an overall sense of calm, try Healthnetics CBD. All Healthnetics products are all natural, made in the USA, and THC free. Healthnetics products come with a 100% money back guarantee as well. Go to healthnetics.com and use promo code TDN for 25% off your purchase. Again, that's TDN promo code for 25% off at healthnetics.com. Now we rejoin the podcast. The trainer lifestyle, I know your time is very, very valuable, so we don't want to keep you much longer. But one final question for each individual. I really want to, I really want to ask, what is, what gets you really fired up? Like if there was one thing that trainers have to deal with on a day-to-day basis, what is that one thing um, that you really want to address that people, the public um, might not necessarily realize or understand? Anybody can start. Yeah, I'll go. Um, I I don't know if anything gets me fired up, but I, I, I think the issue now that's in front of us, um, the court cases, the cheaters. I mean, um, yeah, listen, I'll, I'll be blunt about it. Jason Service was stable next to me. Everyone knew Jason never came to New York. Uh, everyone knew kind of what was going on, what that was doing, what, how it was getting in. Um, I, probably the thing that would be fire me up is the owners that supported those guys. Um, they knew they knew that it wasn't on the up and up. You know, you can win it at 40%. I mean, I work for one of the greatest trainers of all time. Back then, you know, you guys talk Woody Stevens, Charlie Whittingham, whatever. When you won a 20%, that was a big number. And red notes, those are the hard numbers to be 2025, 20, placing your horses where you want to. But these guys went in at 40, 45%. And then the owners, that supported these guys. And in the situation that we're in today with some of the cases going on, and there'll be more, but nothing has been said about any of the owners. Um, maybe they didn't they didn't know exactly what was going on. They knew it wasn't on the up and up. They knew their vet bills were really high, um, but you know we haven't heard anything about them. And listen, the game is about owners and gamblers. You know, we're, we're lucky to be, this is our passion. I'm very fortunate that, I decided at a young age at 14 what I wanted to do. My dad thought I was crazy. Um, but from that point on, I knew what I wanted to do. 
But yeah, that if you want to say one thing that would get me fired up is yeah, what about the owners that supported these people? Um, you know, and not much is said, and you know, people that the press that glorify these guys as like the greatest trainers and you know, uh, like they revolutionize the game. Uh, you know, these are animals that doesn't happen. Brad, what is what is your thought? Maybe what's the one thing that you think is maybe either a big concern or, as Gabby put it, fires you up about what's going on? Well, you know, it, we're in a position where we're winning at a certain number um, and it does kind of fire me up. And it, it I guess it maybe pisses me off a little bit when, um, you know, people label you as, oh, they're given something. And, you know, listen, it's it's one of those things where like. I think if someone came out to the track and hung out for a month or so and kind of watched, you know, maybe the overall way things are done on and off the racetrack people, you know, there's a difference. I think there's a difference in trainers. Um, that's just my opinion. Um, but you know, I, I think, I think there's a lot of negativity around the game. And if we want to draw new people in, I think we should kind of maybe kill it with all the negativity if we could. Um, and promote the game as opposed to, um, you know, I mean, there was a trainer just got, was, um, given some days and a fine for, um, um, in Kentucky. And I mean, I, I just can't believe that just in my mind, I just can't believe that that guy deliberately did something to that horse, um, with whatever the horse received. And, you know, for people to, to, to bash the trainer that, it's just, it's ridiculous. I, I, that's my personal opinion of it. I don't think the guy deliberately did anything. I don't think there was a, an intent. Now back to what David said, there was guys deliberately cheating. That's no good. That's like totally no good. But to, to, for, for, to think that a guy comes up with a positive here or there and that, that it's like a deliberate, um, an attempt to enhance a horse's performance. I just, I can't believe that. And, and I think people get, get a bad, um, bad rap for stuff sometimes and and it's the negative part of the game that people love to talk about love to bash people uh talk about nothing but negative but i i don't think it helps our sport at all and um that's that's something that does aggravate me a bit i mean i i agree with you brad i had to take a couple of weeks off from twitter because you go on twitter i mean you could literally i posted a picture of a tree that my initials were carved into with my dad when i was <laughs> five years old and they said I was a tree killer. So I mean, that's just the, yeah. the ridiculousness I mean, of social media. But I yeah. do think that the responsibility is on us in terms of those within the industry to educate. Um, and I think a lot has to do with the statistics that we have. And I think it's a necessary evil statistics are, but I was talking to Christina the other day, if you're winning at 20%, um, or 35% first off the claim, nobody's really doing their homework and looking at that statistic. Maybe you're claiming a horse for 50 and dropping them in for 25. Right. They're supposed yeah. to win. They're yeah. four to five, you know? It's yeah. not like you're raising them up to stakes it's company. Just, yeah, someone has an aggressive mentality. And, you know, it's like, you know, when you're aggressive, I mean, listen, I did it with Midwest Thoroughbreds. 10, 12 years ago. I mean, we would claim horses and, you know, it was okay. We claimed it for 10 or we got to run it back for 10 or five or, you know, it's just win, win, win. It's just when it wasn't win at all costs. It was play somewhere they can cross the wire first. And I tell people, I mean, it was back then. I mean, I think there may have been a year where we were 32%. We were doing everything. There was nothing done illegal. 
we were running horses very, very aggressively. And guess what? 66% of the time entering those horses aggressive, it didn't even work. It's a hard game to win. It's hard to win, but it's, it, it's also has a lot to do with how aggressive you want to be. And, and everybody's different. Well, and also I would think it's also the quality of horses that you have in your barn too. We look a lot of, at a lot of the top operations and obviously you get trainers, uh, certain trainers that get the, the top, the horses that are coming out of the sales, the sales toppers, the, the top draft picks, so to speak. And um, so, yeah, I, I'm assuming some of those horses should turn out to be pretty good, right? Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, the, uh, listen, it, name the best outfits in the country, whether it's, uh, you know, Brad and Todd and Baffert and whatever. And listen, Brad's in a great spot now. I mean, you're, he's getting horses, I tell people, for Jugmont, Godolphin, uh, among others. They're nice horses. They're, they're going to run well. And I don't know Brad personally that well. Listen, I know that he, same with claiming horses, he aggressively will place his horses and always did. I'm the reverse. I've got clients. I claim a horse. First thing, we can't run them back. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. But right? <laughs> now I got to run them on the race. So the, obviously they're going to get beat. Uh, you know, it is the odd horse that is going to go. So, but listen, I'm comfortable in my zone where I'm at. Um, some guys are, listen, good claiming trainers are good because they aggressively will place your horses. The negative side, today's world, um, it's hard to claim horses. Uh, I didn't realize how liberal the rules were in Kentucky. A trainer, if I'm correct, Brett, a, a trainer can take well as many as you want, right? An owner, an owner can take three. I mean, yeah. you know, we're allowed one. You know, I mean, so you know, you're shaking for everything. You know, Brad, having a few horses in New York. I mean, if you want to claim, it is difficult. But um, you know, again, it's how aggressive you are. What kind of you know, same with Chad's operation? You know, I, I tell people. I don't know. Let's switch stables for a while. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> let me hit some of those grass horses, you know? So, I mean, you know, it's different sometimes than driving a Volkswagen and driving a really nice Mercedes, uh, you know, and yeah. And, but it's a question of where do you want to be in life? Where, what do you want to do? Ron, don't you find that a little bit frustrating though, sometimes when, if you, when people do look at just statistics and they base, they judge based on just that, when they're not really looking into, you know, the quality of horses that the, maybe a trainer has available to them, or because obviously you've had success and you've had success with horses, you know, that maybe didn't cost a million dollars or wasn't the top from a sale, you know, you had, you made, you had great success with, you know, with horses that you developed, but isn't it sometimes frustrating for a trainer when people sometimes just look at stats and then that's, that just kind of decides for them if he's a good trainer yeah. or not. Yeah. I wrote something about this earlier is, you know, I never, I never have understood how everybody wants to use stats. Like it's a definite science. Like, you know, this is a fact. The fact of the matter is, is if certain trainers entered like other trainers, they would have a higher win percentage. Now, does that mean they're getting the most out of the animal, the individual animal? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But I don't like the fact that we only talk about the one stat, the win percentage of the first off the claim, that one percentage. And I said before, you know, I felt like I've done a great job with a horse that was back in the knee that was bred by a 
a breeder of mine, and we ended up winning three out of five. Although they were all claiming races, three out of five with it. As someone else has with a, you know, taking a million dollar horse and winning a million dollars. It's, do you get the most out of your product? Luckily, like people like Brad and Steve, the people that I get to see all the time, I think they get the most out of their product. From that point on, that's your job is to develop the horses you have. You can't hate on somebody for, for you know, getting, you know, Alabama style talent and doing Alabama things with them. But if you, if you looked up and you saw they had Alabama talent and they were doing University of Rhode Island things, then you'd say that that person's not good. Well, I think there ought to be extra credit given when people says, you know, we run a race the other day with a horse that cost $20,000. We, we run second in the race, got beat by a horse that cost $450,000 at the same sale. We run second, got beat a half a length. At the, at the end of the deal, there's a guy sends me something that was on TVG where they complimented that other trainer about how good a trainer he was and how he wins first out. And Moquette just isn't as good with first-time starters. Now, I would argue that I'm way money ahead. Now, I'm not going to say, you know, that horse is supposed to have won based on prices, but we also have had $500,000 horses not run very well. I just want there to be more, you know, it seems like the easiest thing in the world to do is to take this number and go, oh, this number bigger than this number, he better. No, it's not the way it is. It's, there's a lot of things that goes into that number. And, you know, I have been lucky that I have owners that spend money and I've, I've you know, also been lucky that I've had to develop some horses that no one else thought could get there and work their way up. But I think there ought to be extra credit given. And the main thing that I have as far as about things that you wish you could change or really ticks you off about the industry is there's no representation. None. There's nobody up there telling anybody who's in charge that goes up there and who's the and says, listen, you know, that trainer in, in Kentucky, the minute amount of stuff that they found in their system, it obviously isn't enough to enhance a thoroughbred. It's antiquated. It's antiquated, you know, drug laws with very new, uh, newfangled testing equipment. You know, don't let's use some common sense. Somebody get up on social media and say, hey, this guy's not taking an advantage with a with this. This is probably something that got in there secondary. You know, I, I did a deal the other day. A blade of hay from the West Coast is touched by seven different people before we feed it to a horse. Now, is it possible that the guy that I saw at Delaware Park standing in the back of the truck urinating could have maybe he drove all the way from the West Coast? You think he might have been some no-dos or something? And there's a possibility that it happens. If you look in there and it's one trillionth of a trillionth of whatever, you know that's not enough to make a 1,200-pound animal. Meanwhile, we're not saying anything about the test that we can't find today. The stuff that service and them we're doing? This great testing equipment that we're ready to throw the book at this guy over is the same testing, testing stuff that, that can't catch the guy cheating in the Kentucky Derby. So we're going to stand up and testify that that's what we want to be, the end-all, be-all, definite judge of who's cheating? You can't find that stuff if you tested it today. But yet we're going we're gonna to hang somebody else up to dry for, for a trillionth of a gram of something that if you would have tested by this, by this testing, I truly believe if you go back 20 years, test every horse in Kentucky Derby, they're dirty. 
first off, you were allowed to give a lot of stuff legally back then. You know, that's the other thing, too. While I'm on my soapbox, there are no horsemen today. Bullshit. There are horsemen today. They're judged differently. We have a way different way of judging. First off, when I first come to the racetrack, I, I went to the vet. We were talking about we were going to this new stuff called Lasix. We're going to give Lasix. And they said, well, what do you want for a bridal shot? I said, bridal shot? What is that? Well, that's what you give them right before you hang the bridle. Well, I'm not doing that. Oh, okay. Well, they don't test here. But that's the mentality of racing when I got into it. And now you can't have anything for 48 hours out. And I'm okay with it. But don't paint it that the horsemen, have, they've all since evolved and gone away. And now these, these poor people here are just people that's willing to do business. It's, it's not true. There's a different set of judging rules. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that 25 years ago, none of those horses could test by today's testing equipment, in my opinion. Doesn't mean that they were cheating. It just means it. I agree 100% with exactly what Ron's saying there. Um, racing, in my mind, is in regards on a daily basis, is on race day, is cleaner than it's ever been. It's been since I've been in the game. When I came into the game as a hot walker, holding horses for the vet, four hours out, horses got Lasix, Bantamine, and half of them, you know, it, it was there was a lot going on. Um, I don't even know what was going on. I mean, I was just a, a you know, a hot walker. And, and, um, but now, like you said, 48 hour hours inside of a race post time, you don't give these horses anything. And, and that, and like he said, I'm good with that too. I'm perfectly fine with it. Um, but it, it's totally, like he said, there's a, is that they've painted this picture that everybody's out trying to cheat. And I just don't really see that. I just, I, I know what goes on in our barn and it's, um, it's, it's, I, I think, most barns are clean. I really, really believe that. Uh, I mean, there's cameras in barns. There wasn't cameras in barns 20, 25, 30 years ago. And he's exactly right. Um, the, the, the horses that won the Kentucky Derby, I mean, they, they were X amount of years ago, Lasix probably beauty at four hours and, and whatever else. I mean, I, I don't know. And now they put guards on these horses and that's the way it should be. I'm, I'm good with it, but you know, they, they, they act like, Exactly like he said. No, there's no horsemen today. That it, it's it's not true. It's not true at all. And the, the problem is also to to pile on. The problem is is that who is who has our back? Who's over there saying saying look, people, this guy wasn't taking advantage. This just and this ultimate insurer thing. That's the get out of jail free card. It doesn't matter. The ultimate insurer. I just told you that we counted seven hands that touched our, our hay before, you know, it, it makes me nervous. You know, we've got cameras. There's cameras in our barn at Oakland. I know there's cameras in Brad's because I watched them put them in, you know, there's, I think you got 24 cameras. I got 24 cameras and then I've got my own cameras to protect me, but you know, and the, the thing is, it's like, I'm okay with all that stuff, but who's up there saying, you know, just common sense. We we replace common sense with regulations. And regulations is just too black and white. It's like, this isn't supposed to be there. If it's there, you're cheating. Well, where's the common sense at that says that, look, this, whatever this was and this amount had no bearing on it. It shouldn't, you know, shouldn't have, shouldn't be there. Yes, but we can't guarantee that everything. I had a bad test that, 
that I fought and beat, thank God. We had a horse win at Delaware and it's a $6,500 non-winners of three. And she won and they come back and said that she had uh, something I'd never heard of in the system. And I, I was like, Ronnie Werner was my assistant. You know, Ronnie's, Ronnie's an honest guy. He's a good guy. And I wasn't there. I was sick. And uh, I was in the hospital. And they called me and I said, hey, Ron, we need, we need to set up a hearing. You got a bad test. And I'm like, well, holy shit, what's this? And, you know, I called Ronnie. He said, man, there ain't nobody giving that horse nothing. And so anyways, we went and fought it. Come to find out what they were ready to throw. And, and look, the, it wasn't Pollock Report, but something like that. It put me out there and I'm a cheater and all this stuff. And what come out, it was in the water in the test barn. And yet I was already damned and con convicted of cheating for a $6,500 claiming race for two guys that are 6'9 and 6'10 played professional football. Last thing I want to do is call them and say, hey, guys, I was less than careful or I took an advantage when you're three to five. So now you got to send that money back. That, that wasn't a good call, but it was just, you know, I just don't like the fact that nobody's got our back. I mean, we're, we're basically all standing there on our own. Oh, by the way, we're tired. You know, when Brad gets off the phone, when David gets off the phone, I promise you, they're going to do something. They're not going to go catch a game of golf. They're going to do something that is required by the life they chose. And there's just not enough time in the day to defend yourself because these keyboard warriors and these people that are anti-racing are out there throwing all this shit to the wall. And then we're going, oh, well, surely people believe that this isn't right. No, they do. They do believe that we are cheaters and that, that we are, everybody out here is taking advantage of everyone we cross and, and we're, you know, less than desirable group of people. So I, that's my thing. Who's going to have us? What responsibility does the veterinarian have, in your opinions? You, because you guys obviously are the point. You're the point people. You're the trainer, right? You're because everybody falls on you guys. But what, in your opinions, what responsibility does the veterinarian have? Well, I think a lot, and I think we're seeing some of it now um, in New York, at least for a change. You know, where where a you know, uh, and in the harness game multiple veterinarians are in the process of being prosecuted. Uh, but again, back to them, there was not a bad test. So nothing tested if it wasn't for, you know, wiretap and phones and whatnot, they wouldn't have got those guys. But, you know, there, um, you know, listen, we've seen, you know, uh, some changes, I suppose, um, you know, hopefully brings awareness to that profession. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt. I mean, if they, they play a huge role, but I mean, if you can't trust your vet, then you are in trouble. Um, you you got to be, you got to have, a, and, and you know, the people that the, the practice, I use it at the fairgrounds and I use a different practice at um, Oakland. I mean, you know, they're, they're very reliable people that, I mean, I, I trust them. bottom line. You have to have a, you have to have a trust them. And, and um, you know, I don't think those guys would ever do anything. I mean, I, that, that they shouldn't do. And um, that's what it really comes down to is a, a trust factor. Well, 
Thank you guys. I mean, this has been a fascinating conversation. I wish we could go on and on. We might have to have a part two, but um, just really appreciate you being open and honest and candid about it because there are a lot of issues and there's a lot of pointing fingers and there's a lot of negativity. So at the end of the day, I think we just, two things, we need to be nicer to one another and we also just need to use logic and reasoning. (laughs) Common sense. (laughs) Goes a long way. All right. Thank you guys so much. Well, Christina, I think I kind of need to like catch my breath (laughs) at the end of this episode. Fireworks. I asked the question, what gets you fired up? And we really saw what got these trainers fired up. Well, I think it just really, the whole segment really just encapsulates what goes on with trainers and that people don't often have an understanding because the trainer is the point man in the operation. And as we've seen, that point man could be on the top of the world one day and can be exalted and we're all like cheering them and it's just the most, and they are the most wonderful person in the world. And the next moment, Everybody, many people try to tear them down. It's a really hard position to be in. And without really fully understanding what's going on behind the scenes, these guys are running an operation where in many cases, even if you have 20, 30, 40 horses, just think about it. Those are separate individuals that you have to take care of that are connected to how many owners, to how many, and also the staff, the people who are working for you, the blacksmiths, um, the feed uh, you know, company, the uh, shippers. Uh, and I know I'm forgetting, there's, there's a million people that come under that whole umbrella, but Gabby, it's really, I think it really, it really points to the fact that these trainers, they have a lot of pressure on them. They have a lot of eyes on, they have a lot of, uh, on them. They have a lot of scrutiny. Sometimes it's hard and sometimes they get caught in the crosshairs and they don't, and it, you know, it's, it's accidental at times. It's unwitting. And it happens at every level. I think that was important that we had someone like David Donk, who's been training since the 80s, who came up under Woody Stevens. We got Ron McQuaid, who was training since the late 90s. And then uh, Brad, who's been training for 17 years. You know, we kind of hit each group. And in terms of stable size, Dave Donk and probably has the smallest stable size, Ron McQuaid, second largest. And then you get to Brad, who's, you know, um, at a completely different level. But it seems like there is this undercurrent. There's the same issues at each and every level that we really need to address. So I just hope that, you know, this, uh, whoever is listening to this podcast, we do. Uh, We need a change with the times. Technology has changed. Uh, Rules and regulations have changed. And um, I think that's a big part of this. But also, you just, you kind of felt that they were really impacted by the negativity Uh, in the sport. And sometimes I'll be honest with you, Christina, if we're all just pouring it out there today, uh, you know, it's hard for me sometimes that people are just so negative on social platforms too, when we're just working, we're trying to make a living, we're passionate about the sport. And um, sometimes it is disappointing. And I think you kind of got that vibe from these three as well. Well, I think you make a, you make an excellent point. And the only thing I'll add is something that Brad said that I think people just have an impression that when you're super successful, it's all easy. 
It all comes easy. You're making money. Okay, you're making money. You're also paying out a lot more money. Uh, you're also having you with the number of horses you have, proportionately speaking, you also have proportionally more problems as well. Uh, we touched on owners and how important owners, having good owners who are going to support you and who are going to do the right thing and 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 support these trainers. Because again, there is that trickle down effect. If you're if the trainer is not getting paid or the trainer is getting whacked on one side, several, many, many, many more people are going to feel it. So I do think that the sensitivity uh, or the intensity that we saw in them in this episode is, is real because they really become the target for a lot of um, animosity sometimes, and they work hard. Whether you are Todd Pletcher, Chad Brown, Brad Cox, whether you're David Donk, whether you're Ron Moquette, whether, whether it doesn't matter where you are, where you train and where you're settled, it's hard. It's hard work. These are animals. It's seven days a week. It's 24 hours a day. I would say some people like to kick you when you're down too. You know, you had a six to five favorite in a stakes race. You did your best. You were confident going into the race, didn't get the right trip or something happened. Horse lost. You get yelled at by the owners, you know, and you missed your son's football game on a Saturday. You know, it's just the whole world is crumbling. So um, I just think that this really gave us more of a personal, um, you know, a look into the personal life of of a trainer. And I, I, thought this was fantastic a lot of fun yeah i really appreciate them and i'm glad that they came on and uh we'll look forward to the next one down the line but as you said gabby we could probably have done 10 installments uh with these guys and we would have had something new to talk about every time so this was a good one and we're so glad you guys joined us